the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, for today's podcast and interview, I'd like to introduce you to Ray Siva, who is in fact a Korean War veteran. Ray was born in Forbes in 1931, certainly during the Depression. By 1950-51, Ray was working as a cadet engineer in the Blue Mountain Shire, but found it didn't really suit his temperament. He then saw an Air Force advertisement recruiting pilots. He joined the Air Force and was sent for pilot training. In July of 1952, he was awarded his wings and was posted to fighters learning to fly Mustangs and vampires. Ray was then posted to 77 Squadron Iwakuni, Japan, via Hong Kong for further training on twin-engine meteors and then off to Korea. Korea was blistering cold after Australia, he, he does report and no doubt will tell you in the interview. At this stage, he had less than 300 hours flying and felt like aero club pilots had more hours. 77 Squadron operations were out of a very busy military airfield. Their accommodation was in tents of six people and was heated by a big central burner but was still freezing. The new arrivals, of which he was one, were largely about 21-year-olds and were there to learn the art of war through interdiction. They had very little knowledge of why they were there in Korea. They all lived sheltered lives and were there fighting a war. They either bombed, rocketed or strafed, all very challenging for novice pilots. And if they were shooting at the uh, Australians in the dive, they could see the golf balls going past, hopefully. On the dives, misjudging maybe the height and hills could lead to ground collisions, which did happen. Sometimes they were pressed in to adjust their aim and they'd get hit by debris from the explosions. Additionally, you could get target fixation and fly straight into the ground. Enemy aircraft were sometimes a problem that needed good tactics to survive. Ray has a few good stories about encountering MiGs. Yes, the incredible MiG. Crashes and deaths were in fact a a way of life, but people in 77 Squadron just kept on getting on with it. I'd like to give you a quote from Ray before I introduce him. When you, he said, when you flew 40 combat missions with 77 Squadron, you'd earned a medal from the Americans. When you flew 80 missions with 77 Squadron, your medal was upgraded. But then the powers that be in Australia decided against Aussies accepting foreign decorations and banned us from wearing them. Uh, there you go. Have a listen to Ray as he tells us about life in Korea with the Royal Australian Air Force. Well, today it is a great pleasure to be able to talk to Ray Siva, who joined the Air Force uh, back in, well, he got his wings back in 1952. G'day, Ray. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. Ray, why did you join the RAF? Well, uh, 
What happened was um, we moved from the city out to the country, out to the Blue Mountains, and I finished my schooling there. And um, there wasn't a great a lot of opportunity to do tertiary study, so I joined the council as a cadet engineer um, on the proviso that I did study at night. And I did that for about three years, and it was so incredibly boring, and the money was bad. And one night I was sitting at home uh, talking to my mother and I, the paper was on the table and I opened the paper up. And at this stage the Korean War had broken out and there yep. was a lot of news about that. And there was a big ad that said, join the Air Force and learn to fly. And I said, that's it. <laughs> Just like that? Just like that. Now, had I not seen that paper, my life would have been quite a bit different. I think I may not have seen that ad, but uh, I was interested in in a young boy's way with flying aeroplanes, model aeroplanes, and um, and the Korean War, of course, was news. How old, would, how old would you have been at that stage? I was uh, just uh, about 19, actually. Okay. Yes. So yes. you'd finished school and obviously I'd done your cadet course. I finished school when I was 16, and then I was studying uh, engineering when I was 17 and 18, and uh, it was not a very interesting life in the Blue Mountains for a 17, 18 year old. Yeah, fair enough. And uh, it, 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 I was getting nowhere. So. so when you go to the Air Force to join up, where did you go and, and what was the steps getting in? Well, the first thing was to fill out the application form, send that in by mail, and uh, then a response back from the Air Force. And uh, then, of course, there's the uh, medical process to go through and uh, interviews as well. And then finally, um, sometime in February, um, uh, I got a, uh, this was February 1951, I got uh, a letter from the Air Force saying, come and join us. And uh, so that was really great. I, I was really pleased about that. And what that involved, of course, was going down to Central Station, getting on a train, and uh, taking the train all the way through to Melbourne. Yeah. Then getting on an Air Force truck with all the other boys who had been selected. And uh, then we were taken out to Point Cook and uh, to start 18 happy months of training out there. So. Uh, I'm just in, out of interest. Where did you act? Did you do the interviews in Sydney? Yes. Whereabouts in Sydney? Just for a bit of history. Yeah, Bradfield. Bradfield. Yes, yes. There was some sort of a uh, an organisation there. I think I did the medical there and the interviews as well, yeah. as I recall. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, the way people get into the Air Force is quite interesting. You're, yes, it you're is. now at Point Cook. You're now starting the 18-month training. And uh, you had two planes, I, I believe you learnt on, Mustangs and Vampires. Is uh, no, we've no? got to take a step back from there. Okay. The um, the course was 18 months. The first was the initial six months where it was mostly ground school. Right. And what they called flight grading. And flight grading was everybody did 10 hours of uh, Tiger Moth instruction. Uh-huh. And you were graded then as to whether or not you were going to be a pilot, a navigator, or a signaller. And then the second was the intermediate phase where you uh, you did, I think, about 40 or 50 hours of Tiger Moth, uh, converted to the Wirraway and did some Wirraway training. And then the last six months was advanced training on the Wirraway. 
And uh, at the end of that, if you were successful, you got your wings. Okay. So, so that was 185 flying hours total. On those three different aircraft? No, two different aircraft. Two different aircraft. aircraft. Yes, the Tiger Moth and the Wirraway. The Wirraway. So when did you actually get involved with Mustangs and Vampires? How did that happen? Uh well, when you finished and you got your wings, you were graded once again. It would appear the Air Force was always grading you. And uh, most of us uh, looked at it as fighter pilots first, bomber pilots second, transport pilots third. And so the, uh, the uh, aim was to become a fighter pilot. And those of us that were chosen for that were sent to Williamtown, to number two OTU, and it was there that we did Mustang training, and it was there that we then converted, if you could call it that, onto the vampire. And they did not have a trainer. And that, uh, that was a very interesting exercise, going from a, a Mustang, uh, a young man with about 200 hours odd flying, and stepping into a vampire with no training at all. So you taught yourself virtually? You did, indeed. It was a matter of the instructor would come out and the vampire being such a low aeroplane, he could stand there and talk to you at the cockpit and he just looked in to make sure you knew how to start the engine <laughs> and then you are off. <laughs> and the initial briefing, as I recall, was something like take off, go out to the training area, level out at 20,000 feet, do some turns, da-da-da, and then come back. And without exception, I think every one of us looked at the altimeter and it was showing 25,000 feet. The aeroplane was that far ahead of us. And the reason being, of course, you didn't have a big nose out the front to judge attitude or anything like that. You were just stuck out the front of this thing that... That, that just, went fast. Yes. But before you even got to that stage, it was a bit of a circus because we were used to foot brakes and hydraulics and tailwheels. And we were suddenly put in this aeroplane with air brakes, differential air brakes for steering. And, uh, and it was a real circus watching people trying to taxi out. Um, Williamtown at that stage didn't have a parallel taxiway. You entered the runway at midfield and you either turned left or right depending on where the wind blew. And when you all came back, the idea was you all landed, went to the end of the runway until the last aeroplane landed, then you all taxied back and you then exited sure, at the mid, sure. midfield taxiway. Well, that was very educational, watching once you'd landed and you wiped your brow and said, thank God for that, then watching the others come in and land, and that was really quite a circus. Yeah. But uh, Can we just go back to the Mustang for mm. a moment? Because uh, I've read a lot about how good they were. Uh, so, from someone who actually flew them, how good were, was the Mustang as, as, a, as a fighter? Well, it's hard for me to judge. I only had about 190 hours when I went onto them. But it was a delightful aeroplane, and we, we were going from 600 horsepower to 1200 horsepower, mm. and a big long nose in front of us as well. <coughs> and um, it, the aeroplane got a little bit ahead of you until you got used to it. But uh, generally speaking, I think we all handled it reasonably well. Mm. It, it was a very docile aeroplane, really. Uh, big, nice, big, wide undercarriage. And uh, 
the worry was if you got your tail up too high, you might just touch your propeller on the runway. So you had to be careful of that because they had a pretty big uh, uh, propeller. And if you just got your tail up a bit high, you might just take a nick take, out of the take runway. Take a nick out of the... Mm. So even they, they were good for... Uh, and we did air-to-ground gunnery and rocketry and dive bombing in them. Uh, mm. So even though you only had 190 hours in the Mustang... No, not in the Mustang. Total flying altogether. Oh, okay. All when right. We, when we got in the Mustang. So if you compared the Mustang to the Vampire from your memory, which was the more fun to fly and why? It's very hard to say, really. Uh, the Vampire was a funny little aeroplane to fly. Um, it it was very slippery and it made it very difficult to do formation flying, for instance, because you didn't have a big propeller. If you pushed on the throttle, the aeroplane went forward. If you pulled back on the throttle, the aeroplane stopped going forward. But uh, with a jet aeroplane, we soon learned that there was a lag, firstly, in when you push the, um, the thrust lever forward, there was a lag before anything happened. So you'd push it forward a little bit more just as the first bit came in. And off you go. That meant you had too much. And it was a bit of a handful flying in uh, formation until we got used to it. And that was particularly noticeable also on approach, is that if you started to get low and slow, you were in a bit of trouble because then you would have to put a lot of thrust on and wait until it came and and if it came a little bit late you'd you'd touch yep, down early yep. so it's, but it's you soon got used to that and it was it was just a matter of getting used to being up with the airplane i and think and in the vampire what was the cockpit like for a pilot um cramped it was uh, for an average sized person it wasn't too bad I didn't do any flying in the twin, uh, the twin seat trainer, but looking in there, I would have thought two big fellows in that would have been a lot more cramped than in the single cockpit uh, Mark 30 that we're in. Sure, sure. Mm. How did you get sent to 77 Squadron? What were the steps leading to that, Ray? Well, uh, the whole purpose of us being at OTU was to go to Korea. That's that's that was our job. Once we were selected as fighter pilots, there was nowhere else to go. And that was your motivation absolutely, for joining. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and um, it was a little bit disappointing in some respects in that we were not told more about it. I suppose we could have done some reading or something like that, but looking back on it, I would have hoped that somebody would have said, here is a map of Korea. This is where we'll, you will be in the base at Kimpo. This is what you will be doing. And, and giving us that sort of uh, introduction to what we were going to do. In fact, that didn't happen. We were just, we were, uh, just uh, rated on the vampire. We were given all the appropriate training, stuck on a DC-4 and sent. And when we arrived in Japan, we left in the middle of an Australian summer. We arrived in the middle of a Japanese winter uh, about four or five days later. A big contrast. It was a big contrast uh, in lots of ways. Interestingly, Ray, when I've spoken to various pilots who flew in Vietnam, uh, when they were sent to Vietnam, 
the same thing happened. They weren't told anything about, or they apparently weren't told anything mm-hmm. about why they were going, where they were going. So it seems that no lessons were learnt from when Korea started to when Vietnam started. Yeah, I think that there was probably a need to, to at least tell young people what they were going to be doing. You know, this is why you got in, and even a little bit of history about Korea would have been handy, and it would have, I think, perhaps changed our attitude a little bit to the Korean people. When you look at, I've done a lot of reading and I've been back to Korea three times, and you look at the history of the place and it's it's got a huge amount of history. Mm. It would have been helpful for us to know that. So let me get it right then. You One of the motivating factors for you about joining the Air Force was the Korean War. So therefore, surely you must have known a fair bit about the causes of the Korean War or why there was a war? Not really. Not, a, not enough, in fact. And I don't think it would have made a difference anyhow because, you know, you join the Air yeah. Force and you do what you're told. Okay. Well, yeah. you are sent to 77 Squadron. You are yeah. now in 77 Squadron. And you're on now Meteors, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the idea was that you would do your media conversion at Iwakuni, which was the Japanese base where we were uh, yep. domiciled. And then you would be sent a- across to Kimpo and they, you were taken over in the DC-3, for instance. They had a squadron of transport aeroplanes yep. there. And uh, on arrival in Kimpo, you, uh, it was living in tents. So six of you would be assigned one tent. And um, then the first thing that would happen would be that you would be sent on an area recce. There were two area reccees, east and west. Mm-hmm. And the idea of that was you wouldn't be firing guns. You're out there just to look at North Korea. So a a leader would take you out and you'd take off into the northwest mostly, turn right, and then you'd be in North Korea. And if you're doing a west recce, you'd then turn left and go and look at all the terrain, come back, and then the next day or so... You'd do the same thing, but you'd turn right and have a look at the eastern side. And then after that, you were deemed to be operational. But you must have thought, I've only had a total of 300 flying hours, and I'm I'm a pilot going into a war zone. Yeah, well, that did cross our minds, actually, because none of us actually had 300 hours. Oh, (laughs) right. We had more like, I think it was about 285 hours. Uh, when we did our first operational flights. So we really didn't know a lot. And the other thing too, we didn't really know a lot about the media. The media training, uh, they had a a Mark 7 trainer and you would do some circuits and a bit of um, the the usual things, stalling, steep turns. Mm, And And, um, then you would do armament exercises, formation exercises in a Mark 8 at Iwakuni, and then you were deemed, I think I probably had about 12 hours on the meteor, maybe a little more, and uh, then you were deemed to be endorsed, and off you went. So So hmm. the operational aircraft for you in the first era was meteors in Korea? Oh, absolutely, yes, a Mark 8 meteor. And what was the Mark 8 meteor capable of? 
What what kinds of armament did it have? What oh, kind? it had wonderful armament. Uh, four twenty millimeter cannons to start with. That was a huge firepower, and then we normally went with under wing uh, high explosive rockets as well, and uh, that was for targets of opportunity. Or you may even have been assigned a, a target. Um, the the operations um, were sort of you'd do a reconnaissance that was to keep and we couldn't fly at night so this is daylight only this was to keep the enemy trucks off the road so they couldn't supply their troops yep and so they had to go at night uh, the other thing you would be given a target of a troop concentration or a uh, sort of a powerhouse or something like that and that was out do the target back again and then on occasions we did uh, bomber escort which was the media was not too suitable for that mm. but they were the three sort of things that we would do yeah. so when you get to korea obviously the united states of america is the main force there. Yes. What was the relationship and instructions and cross-fertilisation of information like between RAAF and American commanders? I can't speak with authority on that. I was only a sergeant pilot. But the Americans provided us with all of our targets and uh, and then in the morning our operations people would say okay we've got this job you you and you uh, go and that. do that job and yeah. so the americans controlled that and um, the other thing about it was of course we were uh, half the squadron were ncos and uh, there wasn't a suitable uh, non-commissioned mess at uh, kimpo so they told us just take your take your sergeant stripes off leave your wings on and go and eat in the officer's mess. So we we sort of got to know it was the American, it was the 67th TAC Reconnaissance Squadron, uh, which was tactical reconnaissance. Yes. So we, we sort of lived with them, uh, except that we had our own compound where our tents were. On the other side of the field was the 4th Fighter Interceptor Group, and they were the ones that went up and fought the MiGs up on uh, the Yalu River. So was the relationship pretty strong between American and Australian? Oh, yeah, yeah. They used to come and visit our mess occasionally. Um, we had a one particular warrant officer pilot who was very entertaining, shall we say. He knew every word of Eskimo nil. <laughs> and, uh, and the Americans used to come down just to listen to Bob. And Bob would stand up on the bar with a beer and he'd recite Eskimo Nell and they'd all cheer him. <laughs> so, and at one stage, one of my friends um, got involved in a bit of a thing with a couple of MiGs that were attacking um, some of their uh, people uh, who were doing their reconnaissance. And so that built up a bit of a bond as well because uh, they yeah. were happy that this fellow had saved a couple of their guys. Yeah, well, that, yeah mm. that's, that's good. To what extent, when you first arrived, was uh, your knowledge limited and you just simply obeyed orders? Oh, that, that, was, that was it, yeah. There were a number of uh, things looking back on it that could have been improved, but uh, that's what you did. You were told that uh, uh, tomorrow you've got the day off or tomorrow down to the briefing room at four o'clock in the morning because you're taking off at five um and and you'd, you'd know ahead yeah and so that night you wouldn't spend too much time in the bar of course 
<laughs> Ray, we've got uh, Meteors, we've got the uh, Sabres, the F-86 Sabres, yeah. and we've got the MiGs. In combat, what was the comparison like with the F-86 Sabre, the MiG and the Meteor? Uh, well, in the first instance, the Meteor was uh, assumed to be... Um, a high-performance, high-level fighter interceptor, and it was proven to be not... That's not true. And we lost quite a few, shot down by the MiGs. Um, and then they realised that that was a mistake. And so the uh, the F-86 and the MiG were well-matched, but we were not at high altitude. There's um, a friend of ours who I think has died recently... Uh, and uh, he had at the time a record for the highest bailout of anything. He was shot down by a MiG at 38,000 feet and he popped out and parachuted all the way down. Was, was that Ron Guthrie? Yeah, he was taken prisoner of war. Yeah. And uh, they realised that it, at altitude the aeroplane was just not suitable. So, so at, did, at any point did Australians end up in the Sabres? Uh at one point, they did an evaluation, and uh, there were two pilots. I think Murphy was one. I forget the other who actually flew with the Americans for a brief period of time to evaluate it. The thing is, uh, the Americans didn't have enough sabers to provide us with them, and so that's why we finished up with Meteors. So, so at what point then was the was the at in what kind of engagement was the meteor effective as opposed to high level against the MiG? Oh, anything from, say, 20-odd thousand feet down, uh, the meteor probably would hold its own because it was highly manoeuvrable. But at altitude, it, it was a clip-wing aeroplane anyhow, mm. and it had a very low uh, critical Mach number, and so you'd run into compressibility very quickly. So if, if the Meteor's at low, effective at low, yeah. would not the MiG, with I imagine being a faster plane anyway, would not the MiG come in from above and the Meteor would be vulnerable to attack from above? Oh, yes. Yes. If if the MiGs got that far south, we didn't go as far up as the Yalu River, uh, largely because the Meteor didn't have a great range, actually. Right, right. Um, and so... And the Americans kept the MiGs up there. Uh, very few MiGs actually got down too far. Uh, it was this friend of mine who shot one down. Uh, that was just an opportunistic thing. The MiGs had come down looking for something and it was a cloudy day and he popped out of the cloud and there was a MiG and he looked down and they were about to attack the um, uh, T-30s, uh, the... the uh, uh, yeah, the the American troops. Uh, no, the uh, the American uh, fighter bombers. Okay, and yeah. um, and uh, George just had a shot at and had a lucky shot, and he got one. So, and uh, in fact, he may even have damaged another one. So, hmm. oh, that well, that's good to know. So that was the sort of thing. It was an opportunistic thing, but at no stage would you send a bunch of meteors up to fight a bunch of MiGs. That's for sure. No. So, as a pilot, as a fighter pilot in the Korean War, can you relate any experiences or, or other people's stories about what it's like in a war zone being shot at during in that time? Uh, yeah, we um, 
We generally had a bit of intelligence about where the anti-aircraft um, was. Uh, that doesn't include the light, air, uh, the, the light stuff that they fired from the troops. And uh, so you had a bit of a clue on that. But one of the issues was we didn't have a great deal of information about what the terrain was like in North Korea. <coughs> so you'd take off from sea level at Kimpo with your altimeter set to zero, let's say, and you'd fly up into the mountainous area. And if you went into a valley, you had no idea how high above sea level or how far below you the bottom of the valley was. Right. And we lost a lot of pilots that way because they went down and down and down and said, oh, the altimeter's still looking good. I'll start pulling out now. And it was too late. They squashed in. And the media had a habit of doing that being a uh, clip-wing aeroplane, when you rotated it to, to start climbing, it kept going down for a little period of time mm. before it actually mm. bit on the air and started to climb away. By the way, just correct me if I'm wrong, you mentioned the meteor taking out the MiG. Was that George Hale, the yes, pilot? Yes, it was, yeah. Yeah. Did he get any commendation for that when he got back? Uh, there was a bit of, a bit of angst, actually, between he and the CO at the time. Uh, really? Yes. Yeah, it was a bit unfortunate, but I don't think he got the credit that he should have had. Yeah, so Ron Guthrie stands out because he ejects at 38,000 feet mm, in a meteor. Mm. George Hale stands out because he took down a, me a MiG, which yeah. was faster than him anyway. I, yeah, amazing. Oh, yeah, it was a bit Tell me about Bidcheck Charlie. What, what? Yeah, well, Bidcheck Charlie uh, was, uh, I think it was a PO2, which was a, uh, a biplane. And every now and again, they'd send it over. Uh, it'd get down low, fly up the Han River, and then just pop up and drop some bombs on Kimpo and then turn around and go back again. And uh, it managed to do a bit of damage. We were supposed, uh, when the alarm went off, to run out of our tents or the bar, wherever we were, and jump into a split trench. And um, that's what you were supposed to do. Most of the guys didn't. They mm. just pulled another blanket over their head and went back to sleep again. But uh, that 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 was their role. Uh, yeah. Hmm. I don't know whether you ever watched any of the episodes, but the marvellous American series MASH, the television series, not the film, yeah. there's one particular episode where, and they send it up, where that very thing happens and they actually put out a target for Bedcheck Charlie or whatever they call him in yeah. MASH. That, that's for you to hit. But, yeah. Um, uh, there's an interesting aspect that you mentioned uh, that medals from the United States were banned they by were. the Australian. What, mm. what was that all about? I don't know. It was before I got there, but until then, um, when you'd done 40 missions, you got an American Air Medal. Right. And then for every 40 after that, you got an oak leaf to go with it. And the Brits, for some reason or other, said, no, you can't do that anymore. And so there was a whole cohort that didn't get their medals. And uh, one of the fellows on my course, on seven course, finished up as the chief of air staff. And he said, this isn't good enough. <laughs> and he spent a lot of time actually um, lobbying. And finally, we were all granted our medals. And uh, those of it still... 
alive uh, went down to Canberra and the American ambassador gave us all air medals. So, so it was actually the Brits that decided? Oh, that yes, yes. Not the Australians? No, it was the Brits. Because yes. there are only three occasions in which the United States, the President of the United States, has issued at a presidential event. One was Long Tan for uh, anyway one was long tan and the other one was actually in korea uh, and uh, the third and final one was in afghanistan yeah, where an australian unit citation a unit citation oh from, yeah, yeah that was that was for the unit but for individuals and and getting american medals there was an interesting case uh with a fellow called phil zup and phil got injured when some anti-aircraft fire smashed the canopy on his airplane and he got cuts and contusions and when he got back the Americans said you were injured and we're going to award you a purple heart well the proverbial hit the fan then and it was a huge battle for him to be able to claim a purple heart I think he's the only non-American who's ever been able to keep a purple heart fascinating yeah uh, so who would have objected to that? The Brits again? Or? Oh, probably, yeah. That's I don't know. I, I don't know the full story. Oh, okay, well, Phil was a bit before We won't time. make this a Brit bashing event. <laughs> uh, so while you were, you're in, how long were you, were you in there for the full duration of the war? Uh, well, I was there until the war finished and I left a couple of weeks after the war was over. My, my tour was over by sure. then. Sure. So, so what is your profound memory of that particular period of time for you in the Air Force? Oh, um, what, serving in Korea? Yes. Being uh, involved in a war zone in yeah. an, an Australian sector of defence, the Air yeah. Force. I'm not too sure that I had any mature thoughts about it. We were all young and gung-ho. I know there were some of the older pilots who reflected on it and we had quite a few married people actually uh, men who had been dragged when the war broke out uh, away from their wives and children and sent there because they were the only ones available sure and we saw it as an adventure and uh, we were having a good time and if you can have a good time firing guns at people but uh, I don't think any of us felt very deeply about it. And, but I know some of the officers did. And there was one particularly sad case, a fellow called Hillier. And he was on what was to be his last trip before he went home. And in fact, it was his last trip because he didn't make it. Hmm. And um, things like that, you thought, you know, that was a bit sad. So yeah. It's just that... As a person who's not in the Air Force um, but has a, a love of history, we, we know a lot about Afghanistan. We know a lot about Iraq. We know heaps about World War One and World War Two, And a lot of people within Australia look at Korea and it, it, it's earned the nickname the Forgotten War. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm just wondering... You now, as a person who was in Vietnam, not what you in thought Korea. about it while you, Korea, rather not what you thought about it while you were there, but in reflection, in thinking back on your career, what is your sense of it as a part of the history of the Royal Australian Air Force? Uh, I think it was an important part because. Uh, 
it was a war we didn't really have to be in, but we went and served the United Nations. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, we lost 42 pilots up there in three years. Um, overall, I think it was just under 400, including army people that were killed, Australians mm. serving there. The thing that gets me now, I've been in touch with quite a few Korean people and I've been to Korean uh, ceremonies and things like that. The absolute gratitude they still show that some strangers from overseas <laughs> actually went there and put their lives on the line for Korea. Mm. And they're conscious of what North Korea is like and what's happened in South Korea and how they prospered. Sure. And their gratitude is still very, very obvious there. As a young Air Force fighter pilot, were you conscious of the Chinese involvement in the Korean War? Not really, um, because we didn't actually get our feet on the ground. I know the Army blokes certainly sure. were. Um, and I don't think we... Not sure about the Chinese flying the MiGs. They probably did, but we didn't tangle with the MiGs. But I know we would have attacked a lot of Chinese uh, ground targets. Sure, certainly. Yeah, but we didn't actually have a direct confrontation with them. Mm. While we were in Korea, we were locked up in the base, and we had very little contact with native Korean people. We had a houseboy whose name was Kim. Well, everybody's name was Kim in Korea. And Tell that to people today. Yeah, sorry, Gordon. Yeah. And um, he was a nice young lad and to the point where we thought, well, we'll buy him a bicycle as a present. So we bought him a bicycle and I think he sold it straight away and made money <laughs> on it. The other thing we did was uh, the three of us one night were in Ilkuni the night before we were due to fly out and uh, a young little dog got hit by a bicycle or a rickshaw or something and one of the boys it was yapping he picked it up and stuck it under his jacket and said we'll take this back as a mascot so we smuggled this dog into uh, Kimpo and it didn't last very long at all I think it finished up in somebody's cooking pot <laughs> So oh, it might have been Kim again, so we don't know. Okay, we take but we, he may we be had, the person on the bike that hit the dog. But he yes. might have. But we had very, very little contact with Korean people. So your main contact while you were there would have been Americans and British? Yes. We had, uh, at any one time, we had six, seven British pilots with us, um, and they were all good fun, good pilots too. And good fighter pilots. Were they flying meteors? As oh, well? yes. Yeah. yeah, they were part of the squadron. They, it's just as though they belonged to the squadron. Sure. And uh, they they all performed very well. They were good blokes too. And in your three-year secondment to Korea, did you get any R&R &R back in Japan or were you in that? Well, it, it wasn't a three-year secondment. We, the idea was you would do... Um, a month, and then you would get two days R&R &R in, in Japan. In Japan, yeah. Then you'd do another month, you'd get two days R&R, &R, and at the end of the third month, you'd get two weeks R&R. &R. And, uh, and, that, that, and then at the end of six months, they'd send you home. What did you do in your two weeks in Japan, Ray, or should you're not going to share that with us? Well, 
my area, I used to talk to some of the boys and they said, oh, yeah, we went to Tokyo and we did this and we did that. I spent the whole damn time test flying at Iwakuni. And that was almost more dangerous than being in Korea. Test flying what? Meteors. Production test flying. You know, once they'd done a bit of maintenance, there was one one time when I took off and the aeroplane was totally out of control. And what happened, it had been badly rigged. And I was able to get it around and throw it back on the ground again. And uh, and they looked at it and said, oh, look, we're terribly sorry. We made a little mistake here. So, but uh, that was just the one thing. But, uh, yeah, that, that was it. Uh, mostly, um, if you had the opportunity, you'd jump on a train and go to Hiroshima. What uh, was that like? Because it wasn't very long since... No, no, it wasn't. It was very, uh, very basic. It was just a matter of going up there to go to a few bars and have a look around at what happened with the atomic bomb. You'd only be up there overnight and then you'd come back again. So Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, you come back to Australia after Korea, yes? Yes, yes. Now, you were involved in the very first setting up of the base in Antarctica. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell us how that came about. Uh, well, my flying instructor, uh, when I was going through... Um, it was a fellow called Doug Leckie, and Doug was given the task of um, s- supporting the Antarctic Division, and he was told he was he had two Osters, he needed two engineers, engines and airframe, and another pilot. So pick yourself a pilot. And George Hale was also one of uh, Doug's pupils on the same course as me and he said oh George Hale and he said sorry George has spoken for who's next oh well Ray Seaver he'll do so that's how I finished up and uh, it it was the start then of a fairly long story because when I got back from Korea all I wanted to do was spend some money buy a motor car and have a good time well as it turned out I got married because I was going away to you know I had this friend of mine uh, so we decided to get married and uh, then I was off to Antarctica and we finished up with a couple of Osters we flew them from Richmond down to um, Point Cook yes and then we did the float trials down there and other trials and then we loaded them onto the ship the Kistadan and we sailed, I think it was about the 2nd of January, 1954. So when you get to Antarctica, uh, what were the steps leading to the actual establishment of the base? Uh, well, to start with, the we had to reprovision Heard Island. So we had a, a team of new people to do that. And then we picked up the old people from Heard Island because they were then going to be the workers when we got down to uh, the continent. Then we went to the Kerguelen Islands, which is a French possession, and we picked up some dogs and some French explorers. Then we went south, and that was when we ran into ice trouble and we had to fly the aeroplane off the ice um, and find a way in. Well, we finally found a way in, and then we started offloading the ship and then Doug and I did reconnaissance flying. Uh, we did aer- aerial photography. Um, uh, we had a magnetometer, so we were doing some uh, mineral research as well. Mm. 
and uh, that's what we did. It was almost 24 hours of daylight, so you didn't get much rest. And uh, then we had a few weather events that seriously impeded what we were doing. Yeah, well, Ray, just tell us about those weather events because you ended up losing your two aircraft. Oh, yeah, we nearly lost the ship as well, actually. Remind us how. Uh, well, what happened was when we... Uh, the first weather event... Uh, blew the two aeroplanes together and damaged them both. So we were able to make one aeroplane out of two, and then we flew that. And then when we were ready to go, we'd offloaded all the people and all the stores. Uh, they didn't re-ballast the ship, and it was riding pretty high out of the water, so we stuck the aeroplane on the back, and we headed off the... Uh, Dr Phil Law, who was leading the expedition, wanted to do some more exploring, so we went down to um, what they call Olaf, Prince Olaf Bay, actually. And uh, we did a bit of exploring down there, and then the weather came in and virtually locked us in, and we thought, well, we're here for the winter. It was a terrifying few days. And in the meantime, the aeroplane had blown off the back, and we thought, well, we're stuck here for the winter. We've got no supplies. Uh, probably have to eat each other. <laughs> but uh, then another storm came in and broke the ice up a bit and we scarped out of there as quickly as we could. And once we got outside the ice, yeah. we were headed home then. So. Yeah. Ray, I know when you finally left the Air Force, you ended up joining uh, Qantas and the, your career is quite extraordinary as far as that is concerned. But my focus really is the history of the Royal Australian Air Force and men and yeah, women well, who've served in it. When I came back from, uh, there, there was a number of personal events that uh, that affected me greatly. Um, my wife was carrying a child and uh, she'd come down to Melbourne to meet the ship and then she had a, uh, a bit of a medical event mm. because of that. And as, as a result of that, instead of going back home and having some leave, I was stuck in Melbourne with a wife and a sick child. So mm. just, just what you need after three months in the Antarctic. And um, so we then settled in Melbourne. The Air Force were good. They said, well, look, you need a bit of help here. So they stuck me in um, Air Force headquarters on St Kilda Road yep. and said, let's know when you're ready. So then they had to make their minds up what to do with me. So they said, well, how about an instructor's course? So I said, yeah, right. So I went and did an instructor's course. And uh, interesting, on that course were a number of the POWs who'd been released. Um, I think Ron Guthrie, Don Pinkston, Bruce Thompson um, were all on that course. So uh, we got to know them yep. reasonably yep. well. and. There's a sad story that follows that. That perhaps good for another another episode. But Ray, look, um, I think what I really want to underline is the fact that someone listening to you right now, here is a man who was in Korea. Korea is an area where Australian men and women were on active service. It is an important part of Australia's history. 
it is an important part of the history of the Royal Australian Air Force since 1921, a significant role. So, Ray, I want to acknowledge that and thank you very much for your time. But more importantly, thank you for being part of such an important part of Australia's history. So, sir, thank you very much. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.